This morning we are going to continue through the Bible. We're going from Hebrews and starting into James. So you can open your Bibles to the book of James. Who is this guy, James, who wrote this letter? Galatians 1.19 tells us that James was Jesus' brother. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Of course, we know that they only shared a mother. Thus, we can call them half-brothers, if you will. Matthew thirteen fifty-five through 56 tells us that Jesus had at least six siblings, four brothers, and at least two sisters. We read, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? So we see four names listed out as brothers of Jesus. We have Jesus himself, and then the text says sisters, plural. So we know that there was at least two sisters. Seven kids in this household. It makes a little more sense to us now that Jesus' parents left him at the temple. They didn't realize that they were missing him. Went all the way back. you got seven kids to keep up with. Something has to go awry at some point. So, you know, we can extend a little bit more grace to them in that situation. And this was a poor family. In Luke 2.24, the text tells us that Mary offered two turtle doves during her purification. If we look back to the law, specifically Leviticus 12.8, we see that those who were unable to afford a lamb for this rite of purification could offer two doves. This indicates the family's poverty. They couldn't afford a lamb. She had to offer the doves. Seven kids growing up poor. One of them, the Son of God. I have no doubt that this was heavy on James's mind when he was writing about partiality. And we'll see in chapter 2 that he exhorts Christians to not treat a rich man better than a poor man. James knew his brother was poor in the world, yet he was the Son of God. You never know who you're dealing with. James was the oldest of his siblings after Jesus, and he was very close to his older brother growing up. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother? That'd be weird. It may be a little bit annoying. Do you think your parents uh, have something special for your, your sibling? Maybe they think, oh, that boy or girl, they're just perfect. Well, Jesus was perfect. And I think James probably would have gotten annoyed at some point. But it is true that they were very, very close. James was the bishop or the overseer of the church in Jerusalem. It would make sense that someone coming from the deepest depths of Judaism would preside over the church in Jerusalem, where the center of Jewish thought and Jewish practice resided. James suffered a martyr's death at the hands of the Jews 
shortly after he penned this letter. They brought him up to the pinnacle of the temple, and they commanded him to renounce his faith in Christ because this, the way this new Christianity was spreading too rapidly among the Jews. They wanted to quell this. They commanded James to renounce his faith in Christ to a whole multitude of people. When he denied, they pushed him off the temple and he fell, but that didn't kill him. So what does James do once he's just shoved off this temple? He prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then they come down, stone him, and beat him to death. This is James, the brother of Jesus Christ. James held true and was heaved off the highest point of the temple. James did not actually believe that Jesus was the Son of God till after the resurrection. The text says that Jesus appeared to James. Can you imagine your older brother who is crucified, who you saw die, being buried, rising again, and coming to see you? That's when the light bulb kind of went off in his mind. We really are dealing with the Son of God. And there is no doubt in my mind that this is him. Now, now we know who James is, but what about this letter that he's written? This epistle was one of the first written. It predates even Paul's letters. Paul's letters expounded on the doctrine of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This letter from James focuses on the teachings of Christ, and especially his teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. We see many parallel verses between the writing of James and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at these in more detail as we move through our study of James, but I'll point a few out to you right now that we'll see today. You can compare James 1-2 with Matthew 5-12. You can compare James 1-4 with Matthew 5-48. And you can compare James 1-5 and James 5-15 with Matthew 7-7-11. James is writing this general epistle to the Jews. He addresses believing Jews most often, but he does throw in a few warnings to unbelieving Jews. The whole spirit of this epistle breathes the same gospel righteousness, which the Sermon on the Mount indicates is the highest realization of the law. The law points to Christ. The Gospel of Matthew is said to be the most Hebrew of all the Gospels. So it would make sense that the book of James follows much, of, much the same as Matthew. There is one error that James meets in this epistle. That error is the Jewish notion 
that their possession and knowledge of the law of God would justify them. We know that is not the case. James writes directly to that error when he says, don't be hearers only of the word, but doers. It's not enough to know. You must have faith, which produces an outworking of good works. The works are important. James spends quite some time talking about this fact that believers' works provide witness to their faith, so that true faith gives an outflowing of works. The overarching theme of this letter is maturity. James gives us insight into what a mature and a maturing Christian should look like. The mature believer, and we'll go through uh, these chapters real quick. I'm going to give you a rapid fire of some topics he's going to talk about. The mature believer in chapter one, he says, rejoices in trials, knowing that God uses them to perfect us. The mature believer endures and conquers temptation. The mature believer doesn't just hear, but does the word. He is a doer of the word. In chapter two, the mature believer doesn't show partiality. The mature believer lets his faith produce an outworking of good deeds. In chapter three, the mature believer is in control of what he says and is full of wisdom. In chapter four, the mature believer is humble and doesn't speak evil of other believers. In chapter five, the mature believer is patient and shares in his fellow believers' trials and joys. So we are going to see all of these topics come up as we go through the book of James. This morning, we're starting in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 reads, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So James gives his name right off the bat, James, so that the readers know who is writing this. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that he chooses to label himself as a bondservant, a slave. A a slave who chose to be a slave, doulos. He chooses to label himself a slave, rather than, hey guys, I'm the half-brother of God. You know, in my flesh, that's the introduction I would want. This guy is the brother of Jesus. He has authority because of that, but not James. James chooses to label himself a bondservant of God. Interesting, too, that he will talk later about humility. You know, it's one thing if I tell you, humble yourselves. You know, don't, don't let yourself be puffed up. But then seeing James tell us to humble ourselves, seeing everything that he's gone through, who he grew up with, and this example of actually humbling himself, it puts a, a whole nother timber to these words. James, a bondservant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. The twelve tribes are referring to the Jews, the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, greetings. This is a salutation that means be calmly happy or well off. It's like saying, be well. But this same word also means rejoice. I don't believe that it's a coincidence. The next sentence James writes is about rejoicing, finding joy in trials. Are we dealing with a double meaning here for the word greetings? Verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We can compare this verse, as I mentioned earlier, to Matthew 5.12. That verse reads, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets, who were before you, both talking about rejoicing and about suffering. I don't like those two things together. You can have them separated. You know, I'll take suffering. When I have to rejoice in suffering, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's easy. Okay? Rejoicing in suffering is tough. And we all know that. We've all been through something that has made us suffer these trials. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. I heard someone say, don't ask me how I feel when I'm going through a trial. Ask me what I know. And that is such a good way to look at these trials. Now, when we're going through something, it can feel like God has turned away, can feel like he's abandoned us. But we know from his word that that is not the case. Don't ask me what I feel. Ask me what I know. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We are to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the testing of our faith produces patience in us. You think you have faith? That's good. But you'll see what kind of faith you have when you face some kind of tribulation that stretches that faith to the max. And when faith is tested, only True faith remains. If Abraham thought he'd had faith, but when God told him to move his family to an undisclosed location, he threw in the towel instead of obeying, well, he would have realized, I don't have as much faith as I thought I did. Good for Abraham that he chose to obey God through faith. This was accounted to him for righteousness. Trials do present an incredible 
opportunity for us as believers. Did you have to take any benchmark tests in grade school? I did. All growing up, I had to take these benchmark tests. They were not fun. In fact, I remember everyone grumbling about them. Oh, we got to take another benchmark. That's what we call them, just benchmarks. But these benchmarks indicated to my teachers whether I was grasping the information that I needed to or if I needed to turn and give special attention to some subject or some topic. It kept the pulse of how I was progressing. The trials that come upon us are no different than that. They expose weak points. They expose failures. And those are the things that we can then turn our attention towards. It's wise for us to take them as they're intended by God. These trials are benchmarks. They expose the chinks in our armor and subsequently produce patience in us. This word patience speaks of an enduring patience. It's not passive. It's active. It's endurance. It's not sitting on the corner waiting for the bus kind of patience. It's sitting on the corner while it's raining, sleeting, snowing, hailing, the wind is 20 miles an hour, and it's 33 degrees outside. You're bearing up under suffering. It's an active endurance. That is the kind of patience that these trials produce in us. Verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We'll compare this verse with Matthew 5:48. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Our destination is not just a place, but an image. We are to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. This word perfect also hints at completion. We are to be complete in Christ. And this building of patience gets us closer to completion, to perfection. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. A couple of days ago, this was Friday afternoon, Summer was sitting in class while I stuffed our bag with the last few things we needed to leave town. We were headed up to Allen to visit my family. And I was, you know, trying to cram the bag full, zip it up, you know, strain in, veins popping out of my face trying to close this bag. And I think, man, I'm going to get some brownie points. So I go downstairs, I grab a few Oreos, and I grab Summer's favorite mug. Uh, It's a Spock. Star Trek mug that I just bought her. She loves it. So I grab her mug. I put some milk in it. Awesome. Going to take this milk and Oreos to her when I pick her up from class and we head to Allen. So I'm in a hurry, okay, because we're running late as per usual. And I grab the mug. Don't think about it, really. Take it in the car. And it won't fit in my cup holder. So I set it on the center console. And I plug my phone in. 
I'm actually listening to Joe Foch preach on James 1. So that's playing, uh, trying to buckle myself as I back out of the parking spot. I come to the edge of our parking lot and there's a car coming. So I roll to a stop. And the whole time I am thinking about this mug that's sitting by me. I know it's there and I know it's unstable. But I slowly roll to a stop. It's on a bit of a decline. I catch some movement out of the corner of my eye. That mug is dramatically and in slow motion scooting towards the edge of the center console. I see it tip over, and literally I saw it in slow motion. You know how that works? That's cool. I saw the milk fan out over Summer's seat, and it gently sat itself down. There were a few drops that did not land on that seat. I'm serious. It spread out. And it landed straight on the seat. The entire thing covered in milk. You know, water wouldn't be too bad, but milk, that's nasty. So in trying to get brownie points, I created this huge mess. Mom, that was the setback. That put us a few minutes late. So all the while, I'm sitting there. This milk has just spilled on my beautiful wife's seat. She's going to be so mad. And Joe Foch is saying, my brethren, (laughs) count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. (sighs) Okay, God. God, please give me the patience. I need patience right now. And of course, that's a, a silly example. But the truth rings through. The principle holds fast. When faith is tested, patience is produced, and perfection is propagated. Everything works for the good of those who love him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Back up to verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. I want to compare this now with Matthew 7, verse 7 through 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. James was called Old Camel Knees. This was because of the calluses that had built up on his knees from being knelt in prayer. He didn't realize that his brother was God until he appeared to him after the resurrection. And when Jesus ascended, James, in the physical, lost his closest brother, no doubt his best friend. When you lose someone, you'd do anything just to talk with them one more time 
just to have one more conversation. James was no different. But there was something different with James. He knew that he could talk to his brother again. He spent the majority of every day kneeling in prayer to his older brother. That's incredible. Old camel knees. If anyone knew how God would respond to our prayer, it would have been old camel knees, James. We can go to God confidently. We can ask for wisdom. The text says that he gives to all liberally and without reproach. He's not going to mock us for asking for wisdom, for asking for something according to his will. He's not going to say, I already warned you about that last week when you prayed to me, and now you got yourself into trouble. Get out of here. That's not how he responds to us. We come to him humbly, but with confidence, and he gives liberally, without mocking. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. There's no stable base there. He's being tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This double-minded man um, is, as we would say, two-faced. He is vacillating or he's two-spirited. Those are all different definitions of the same word. It says that he is unstable in all his ways. There is no solid foundation on which he can build. The result is just this. All of his ways are unstable. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers in the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Jesus told a parable about people humbling themselves at a wedding feast. Luke 14, 8 through 11 records this parable. It reads, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sat at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And here James says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. 
the lowly will be exalted. And the rich, someone who pushes himself up higher than he ought to be, will be humiliated. The more honor was given to the man who placed himself too low rather than too high. And that is the call to us. Be humble. Put yourself down a notch. Even if you think you should be up top, it's wise of us to lower ourselves. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. 11. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers with the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. The rich man and the poor man are both reduced to absolute equality right before they pass from this world to the next. The rich man can be laying in the nicest hospital available. The poor man in the streets. And in the end, they both have the same thing to worry about. The rich man is not worried about who will inherit his estate. The, the poor man is no longer worried about his next meal. There is one thing that they both have to worry about. Where am I in relation to God? How is my relationship with God? Have I been washed by the blood of the Lamb, or have I not? It's the only thing that matters in that moment. There is nothing else that differentiates the rich man from the poor man. And James talks more about this in chapter 2. But are you blood-bought? Are you washed, or are you not? This is the question. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you think I am? You know, they had listed off what all these different people groups thought of Jesus. You know, you're a good guy. You're an ascended master. You're a liar. You're a lunatic. Well, guys, it doesn't matter what they think. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, as he does, spoke up. He said, Jesus, you are the Son of God. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And this is the question. Who do you say that he is? And if you have not made a confession in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would invite you to do that this morning. I don't know who has and who hasn't. But I present to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you have not made that confession, if you have not placed your life under the lordship of the only good master, I would invite you to do so. And feel free to come up to me, Leonard, Doug, and we will walk you through that if that's something that you want to take part in this morning. 
We are going to stop there in verse 11 this morning, and we will pick up in verse 12 next week. As we do close, let's close in a word of prayer.